Welcome to Connecting the Docs, a podcast from the State Archives of North Carolina, where archivists connect archival materials to fascinating and true stories from the past. The theme of season two is Unprocessed, where each week we deliver rare and often overlooked topics related to North Carolina's storied history. Now here's your host, John Haran. Welcome to Connecting the Docs. I'm your host, John Haran, and I'm here with reference archivist Lauren Murphy and a records analyst, Josh Hager. And we are going to be talking about a, f- a few spooky stories out of the archives today. Thank you, John, for having us on the show today. And I'm going to start this little campfire by telling us a tale of death by bewitching. It was the 25th day of July in the year of our Lord, 1703. When Deborah Bowsher, the wife of Thomas Bowsher of Currituck County, was suddenly taken ill, it began with severe pain in her feet, which felt as if a thousand nails were piercing them, which could only be alleviated by hot water. This continued for 24 hours and then ceased only for the pain to erupt again, this time in her bowels. Many individuals tried to help ease her suffering, but she was tormented by this pain for nearly a month until she finally succumbed and passed away. In her pain, she cried out that she was ill by the hand of Susanna Evans, an evil woman, so she said, and requested that Susanna Evans be brought to justice so that others might not suffer the same fate as her. Thus, in October of 1703, Susanna Evans was brought to court and accused of being led by the instigation of the devil to maliciously bewitch and by assistance of the devil afflict with mortal pains Deborah Bowsher, leading to her death. That is fascinating. What else do we know about Susanna Evans? Do we have like a like a sketch of, of who she was? I mean what did she have black cats and a pointy hat and a cauldron out front? Or like how did we how did how do we know any of this stuff? So we mostly know it through the colonial court records. Um, a fascinating but very difficult to read and decipher group of records from the late 1600s and early 1700s. Um, So these have been preserved for 300 plus years. Uh, You can kind of imagine what a piece of paper, you know, might look like after 300 years. It's maybe not the easiest to read. Um, And so, but it's one of the best records we have of the time period because it's one place where records were created. I mean, paper would have been expensive. Not everyone was keeping extensive journals, but the court records preserve for us a little snapshot of what people's lives were like in terms of how they interacted with each other through these kind of civil and criminal suits, you know, where one person accuses another person of something and then the court kind of has to decide if they're going to keep going with it, which they did in the case of Susanna Evans. Aha. Okay, and so how did these how did these two people know each other? It's kind of unclear exactly how they knew each other. They seem to have been neighbors because in his deposition, Thomas Bowsher specifically mentions that his servant has come back from John Evans' house. And you know, these the what Josh read is kind of a narrative of the actual historical record, which really does say that um 
a thousand nails were piercing her feet um, and records Thomas's um, telling the court that Sus um, that Susanna Evans was accused by his wife of, of being the reason for her torment and the reason for her eventual death. And these snapshots are often all you're going to get for people in the time period of the, the early 18th century. Yeah, so Susanna Evans, um, her husband pursues a full trial for her, which was interesting. He went before the court and petitioned them to give her a full jury trial. Um, and so they rounded up the jury from among the citizens of Currituck County and jury found her unanimously not guilty and so not only is she found not guilty but she comes back into court with her husband later and they sue Thomas Boucher for defamy for his accusation and win so they walk out of court with an attachment against his estate meaning that when he dies no matter what heirs there are they get some of his estate Susanna Evans was found not guilty and in fact, she took, she took it back and won. And so that seems uh, maybe a departure from what people think of when they think of sort of these uh, witch trials and cases and, and all of that sort of thing. I'm wondering, are there other witch trials in North Carolina? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, on the same day that Susanna Evans was eventually tried for witchcraft, another woman named Martha Richardson was also tried. And also found not guilty by the same jury. Um, in the research that I did in the colonial court records, I wasn't actually able to find evidence of a conviction for witchcraft. Um, but of course, this is a body of historical records that definitely has some gaps. So I'm not saying that there absolutely wasn't a conviction in North Carolina. Um, but there are definitely lots of examples of women who were who were accused of witchcraft coming back into court and suing the men who accused them and winning. Uh, Mary Rooks, who was a prominent widow in Currituck County, appears in the court record multiple times for various things, actually won no less than three cases of defamy against three different men who accused her of witchcraft which is just fascinating yeah, it makes you wonder what these people had against mary rooks i mean geez three times all three yeah, no l's and then and then <laughs> and these guys still and they had to pay her i mean that how, yeah. why, you, you'd stop after a while you'd think <laughs> um, but it, it's really cool i think with with mary rooks especially in the early 18th century, you don't often think of women as having historical agency in a legal, in a legal um, environment. But here you do. Now, um, Susanna, her husband, was the one who initiated the full trial to prove her innocence. But these women are able to have their story told, in some cases tell their own story, and win. These witchcraft trials, I think, really get to something more interesting as you could say that, then being a witch, it, it really gets to um, this complex legal history and cultural history and gender history that is is quite fascinating, I think. Uh, yeah, and I think that if you look at the sort of gender history of it, and you see, you see that, that these women were able to bring these counter trials, but in another sense, 
continuing along the vein of gender history, do men get accused of being witches? Or do they get wizard? Or how does that work? I would probably fall over in the search room if I was able to find a court record that accused a guy of being a wizard. I mean, that would just... So many levels of... (laughs) (laughs) Just incredibleness there. Um, Short answer, yes. Uh, In reading about kind of our next story, I found that Duncan McFarland of Richmond County was actually accused of being... Uh, accused of witchcraft if not accused of being a witch at various points but that's not even the most interesting thing about him okay so to set it up this is 1799 richmond county and one of richmond county's most prominent citizens has been affected by the bite of a mad wolf at specific points in the cycle of the moon he feels the effects of the wolf's saliva mixing with his blood resulting in acts of insanity, violent outbursts, and a general reign of terror among the inhabitants of Richmond County. Most recently, he's threatened that if he does not win his next election, a thousand lives shall be lost. And this all comes from an actual petition presented to the General Assembly in 1799 about Duncan McFarland accusing him basically of being a werewolf um even though that specific term is not used and other secondary research it comes up that he has been accused of witchcraft but i think that that is kind of overshadowed by this petition (laughs) accusing him of being a werewolf that accusation has more bite to it oh (laughs) oh dear that's funny that's good So you're saying that this individual was both accused of witchcraft and the, uh, is it higher accusation, the one that has more bite of being a werewolf? Absolutely. So they present a considerable amount of evidence about his um, kind of, they call it a system of terror of his writing about Richmond County and uh, kind of coercing people to vote for him. I mean, he's just so power hungry, they say. And they present as evidence for his madness the idea of his being a proper person to run for the House of Representatives because he has run for the federal house and (laughs) apparently that's just so insane it means he's got to be a werewolf. He does actually get elected to the Federal House of Representatives five years after this petition, though, and serves on the Ninth Congress. So, (laughs) you know, it's an extremely dense picture of just this kind of chaotic Richmond County where your representatives are changing every couple of years. Duncan McFarland served as a representative in the early 90s. 1790s that is uh and this petition is signed by people he served with in the house of representatives people he lost to and at times beat in races for the senate set against this context where robert webb has been elected senator from which from richmond county but cannot attend congress due to health issues and so they have a runoff election which is contested And 
these people basically are supporting the other senator and pin this just incredibly descriptive petition mm-hmm. uh, trying to give all this weight behind why their candidate should win and not Duncan McFarland. Well, it's not just the political. Duncan McFarland also has a track record. He shows up in pretty much every term of court in Richmond County in the years prior to this and going forward, either as a criminal or as a litigant in a civil case, often charged and convicted with assault and battery several times against women, although usually he only has to pay a fine of one penny. So yeah, he gets now, fined more for stealing a hog than he does for assaulting a man. Well, of course, because he made the bacon. Uh-oh. <laughs> Every story gets a joke. <laughs> One of the kind of things that's wonderful and frustrating about the about court records is that they provide evidence of a time that we don't have a lot of documentation for, right? But normally only really the bare minimum is recorded. So I can find State versus McFarland all over the court dockets, but I don't necessarily know what he's accused of in every case. There's one case in which he's accused of treason and found guilty in 1782. It's like, treason against whom and uh, why? I'd love to find out more about that. Um, Definitely accused several times of assault and battery. found guilty and i mean he just must have had such ends with the court because he gets fined like josh said one penny i mean that is not what you would normally see for an assault and battery and so now you said that several other uh of these petition signers they were all legislators yes so james coleman served alongside mcfarland in the 1792 to 93 house of representatives and he also was involved in litigation that made it all the way to well maybe not litigation but um, a petition that made it all the way to the general assembly from duncan mcfarland because james coleman was elected lieutenant colonel commandant of richmond county i don't know what that means would love if if any of y'all can shed some light on that he was elected to that position in 1796 and mcfarland appealed to the general assembly saying that james coleman wasn't fit for that position and that Um, He was fraudulently elected and had never actually held a military office, so it was insulting to all those in Richmond County who had that he was elected. And that a mere three years later, James Coleman is signing this petition stating that Duncan McFarland is a a werewolf. That's a lot of bad blood there. It seems to me that a lot of these, how would you know that they were legislators? Did they sign, you know, uh, Coleman, comma, legislator? How, How did you know that? Oh, that's a great question. So there is this really handy book, North Carolina Government, Narrative and Statistical History. It's actually available in our digital collections. The digital collections being a joint venture between the library and the state archives. The state library has digitized that that book and made it available. And it lists for every term from, I think, I mean, just early statehood to, I want to say the 1970s. Is that right, Josh? I believe so. It lists the representatives from each county, and it even goes into the representatives to federal house, the judges, just a lot of information about who was serving 
in various government positions each year. So I started looking at the signers of the petitions and just kind of looking back at that book and going, oh, I'm recognizing some of these names. Yeah, it's really good for tracing, you know, somebody who may have gone up the ranks from, you know, a member of the House to a member of the Senate and then maybe Federal House, maybe Council of State. You can kind of trace their career and see where it goes because, you know, the 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 records of the General Assembly from that time period, the bills don't often say who wrote them or, or anything else about committees. So sometimes it's, it's hard to track within the actual archival records what they were doing in, in General Assembly or he, even who they are. It's, it's really difficult even up until the 20th century. So it's really good to have this source that lists everybody because then you can create this complex web well, or should I say not created, the complex web existed, but figure out that this is a complex web of uh, political regional rivalries being played at the General Assembly level. And the interesting thing I want to point out is, A, petitions, the General Assembly petitions for this time period are in digital collections. So you can go look at this petition itself, but I really want to emphasize that petitions are a great resource for genealogists because most petitions are written by groups of folks who are asking the General Assembly for a policy change, whether it's to make a new county because their courthouse is too far away, or to change a taxation law, or to, you know whatever the case may be. There are often petitions uh, regarding slavery, especially from Quakers uh, in North Carolina, and there are, can be petitions of manumission in the General Assembly records, which are very interesting. But this is one of those cases where it is the petition was an act of politics. It's possibly one of the most interesting cases of politics and sort of the mythical intersecting. But it's not the only case of the occult and politics intersecting. We have one more story about ghosts and governors. Tune in next time to hear the riveting conclusion of our spooky stories. This season of Connecting the Docs is created by staff members of the State Archives of North Carolina. Special thanks this week to our guests Lauren Murphy and Josh Hager, to our producer Randy McRae, and special thanks to Judy Allen Dodson, the voice you hear at the beginning and end of each episode. I'm your host, John Horan. Thanks for joining us this week on Connecting the Docs, Unprocessed. Make sure to visit our website, Connecting the Docs, podbean.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or via RSS so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our blog, History for All the People at ncarchives.wordpress.com. For more news and information, please visit our website, archives.ncdcr.gov.